1: Hi, I'm Rob Schneider, and on behalf of my intrepid co-host, Kevin David Thomas, we both wanted to welcome you to a very special episode of Behind the Curtain. On January 29th, 2018, we lost our 37th guest, Rick McKay. We always wanted Rick as a guest, but we didn't put him at the top of our list because he was so young and we thought, oh, we've got plenty of time. Well, to paraphrase The Secret Garden, how could we ever know? Rick was one of our show's biggest supporters and immediately ingratiated himself to us when he opened our studio door and said, now, which one of you loves Joyce DeWitt? He obviously had listened to us. It was a mind-blowing moment for Kevin and I to know that someone that we had admired for so many years admired us in return. His work on Broadway, The Golden Age, is astounding, and we so hope that one day we will all be able to see what Rick had in store for the second and third part of his wonderful trilogy. In his honor, we have reposted our interview with Rick McKay, which was conducted in October of 2016. We send our love to his siblings, Stephen, Linda, Sandy, Stacy, and Hope, We hope you enjoy revisiting one of our wonderful guests who left us waste too soon. Ladies and gentlemen, here is our interview with Rick McKay. Hey, listeners, Kevin and I need your help. Yes, we need your help. Please, please, please.
2: We need your stars. We need your reviews, you guys, on iTunes so we can start
1: to climb those iTunes rating charts. It's simple. Open iTunes, click on the iTunes store, search for behind the curtain Broadway's Living Legends.
2: Then click on ratings and reviews. Under the customer reviews, click
1: write a review. Then let us know what you think from one to five stars. If you need some help think of one star being Carol Channing and Paul Lynn in the road company of the last five years and five stars being free front row tickets to Hamilton (laughs) although when you think about it I actually would give five stars to the road company of Carol Channing and Paul Lynn in the last five years because I think that would be Uh, awesome I would
2: love to hear can I hear moving too fast as Paul
1: (laughs) (laughs) that's the the one I really want Jesus shakes the the goddess (laughs) been through Erica Schwartz and Danica Weiss and the Handelman
2: twins so there you go. You can also leave a comment if you like. That's it. That's reviews. it. Send us Thank your you. reviews, Please. friends.
1: Thank Hi, I'm Rob Schneider.
2: And I'm Kevin David Thomas. And
1: this is Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Broadway Curtain, and make sure to join our Facebook page at Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends.
2: And follow us on Instagram at Broadway Curtain Podcast. Also, you can always listen to our podcasts on the Broadway world.
1: Before podcasts, before YouTube, before Blue Gobo, there was no real way to hear legends tell their stories in their own words and in their own voices. But in Two thousand and four, a documentary premiered in the United States and it was called Broadway, the golden age. And it featured a plethora of Broadway legends, many the last link to a bygone era, preserving their stories and their wisdom. That's right. And when Rob and I started this podcast, we really wanted to emulate. And in some
2: small way, we wanted to uh, capture the brilliance of this documentary. Uh, we have been inspired by this documentary, and consistently inspired by its producer and director who has worked tirelessly
1: to capture these artists and celebrate the contributions to the history of this art form to tell us what it was like to document the stories of faye ray patricia morrison fred ebb plus hundreds of others here is a man who will be celebrated for years and years to come for what he has preserved on film producer and director rick mckay
3: Wow, thank Welcome. you both very much. Well, we're so, so happy to speak with you. I was so fascinated because I love your podcast so much, and I thought, wow, this is a slightly different opening today. And, I, and I'm listening to you, and I'm like, wow, they were inspired by a documentary. I have to see this. And then I, I'm serious. And then I was like, oh, you it's made me. it. <laughs> <laughs> you You
2: did all of that. Oh, well, that's good. Cool. Um,
3: I guess I don't have to rent that now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've
2: seen that. <laughs> oh, it's a gift that keeps on giving, too. It's such beautiful work. I mean, to to start right out, I mean, it's just the amount of time you spent interviewing all of these amazing people, but not only that, editing it and finding the storyline and finding the themes
3: and all of that. Well, PBS told me once that it's, they call it an evergreen because they say they can show it and it It never gets old. And Marion Seldes, I ran into her once at Carnegie Hall, and she she grabbed my arm and she pulled me off into a corner and she said, darling, it was on last night. I said, what? She said, our film. And I said, oh, it was. And she said, I was preparing to go out and I sat down on the edge of my bed and I thought I'll watch two minutes. Suddenly, two hours, gone. (laughs) Just gone. She said, I could watch it again and again. It's a new movie each time. Amazing. And I know how she feels because when I would go to film festivals with it, when it was even just starting, I would have to make copies, you know, because I was editing it. And sometimes, well, not sometimes, I'll be honest with you, we won 17 film festivals and it was for 17 different movies because (laughs) I used film festivals as our out of town preview. Sure. I kept recutting it because I'd stand in the back of the theater like Mm. Moss Hart in Act One and Pace in the back of the theater. And when I heard seats creaking, I'd think, hmm. And we'd show it like five times in each festival. If I heard seats creaking every day, I'd say, this part's too slow. I've got to tighten this part. Wow. And I'd tighten it up. And at the next film festival, I'd hand them the master. And they'd say, oh, no, when you submitted, you sent the film. I'd say, yes, but there's mistakes in there. And there's dropouts. And there's things. So I did a new copy for you and they never knew because the judges you know would not watch the film again they'd introduce it and they'd run off and put a fire out in some other theater so we would actually win for a different movie in each festival <laughs> that's incredible you know? yeah. and i i just kept tweaking it that way you know but i as i would be making the new copy as the you know pulling an all nighter packing and stuff I would find myself sitting down and watching it all over again and thinking this is a good movie you know I never get tired I can sometimes even now you know if it comes on TV or something I will find I can or someone I watch it with someone or if I have to go to a screening because I'm lecturing on a ship or like I'm lecturing at a university I always like a fool watch the beginning of it because usually you know as you know at a university if if I'm asked to come usually the professor has seen it you know or the head of the department and they'll ask me do you want to have Dinner during the film, or do you want to watch it again? I'll say I've seen it, you know. So, but I'll say, do you mind if we watch just until this moment, like ten minutes in? And it's like I like like you're a director, and you want to make sure. That you know the audience is getting it, and that yeah. the cast is getting their laughs as mm-hmm. if you can run backstage and say, pick up the pace or something <laughs> right. you know it's, it's a movie, Rick, you know, right. but I right. wait until well, Shirley you Ma- did it. Yeah. Shirley McLean says, you know, like when I ask the when's the first time you saw a show, I wait like for Shirley McLean to say,, well, I think it was seventeen sixty three or until Charles Nelson Riley says, you know, about Julie Harris, you know, you can get out of here, you know, you know yeah. like the Maz, you yes. know and, you know he says not the Roseanne show, you know and the audience all screens with laughter and I look at the head of the theater department and goes okay we can go yeah. <laughs> you know like it it's okay now have you always been in love with show business i think so i mean i was a weird kid like most of us are i was the classic middle kid there were eight kids in my family in oh, a small wow. town in Beach Grove, Indiana, and mm-hmm. I was the fifth of eight. You know, I was once writing a memoir that I was gonna name Fifth of Eight. <laughs> you know. And I even thought, you know, five slash eight would be like a great cover art for Absolutely, it, you know. But you know, I grew up in a small town, like I said, in Beach Grove, Indiana and, and I loved old movies. In fact, our afternoon movie, we all had one of those three o'clock matinee movies. Our hostess, believe it or not, was Francis Farmer? Remember Francis Farmer? Did you ever see the movie Francis? With yeah, Jessica Lange. Oh, uh, about the Hollywood actress who was yeah. lobotomized. Oh my God! Know, the, yeah, historic, yeah, yeah, Francis yeah. yeah. Farmer was nominated for an Academy Award that year for that and for Tootsie. It's one of the few years an actress nominated for two Oscars the same year. That's right. Wow. That's and right. in fact, she won for Tootsie because every time an actress is nominated for Best Supporting Actress and Best Actress, she's always won for the supporting role. Yeah, for some odd reason. How fascinating! So yeah, Francis and the real Farmer was, Francis your, was after the lobotomy, <laughs> and she was. Uh, <laughs> Discovered selling perfume over a perfume counter in a department store. She was discovered by Ralph Edwards selling perfume and put on This Is Your Life, Frances Farmer. Wow. And she got a flurry of activity and made like two teen (laughs) rock and roll movies. And then the offers dried up because, you know, a lobotomized actress can't memorize that many lines. So the only decent offer was to move to Indianapolis and host the three o'clock afternoon movie. And she would, you know, stare, kind of. Glassy eyed, and talk a little bit about the Theater Guild and things, you know. And so, when I was living in New York at the Theater Guild with Clifford Odette, we would sometimes do a play that this movie was based on, and she'd introduce the movie. And I would run home from school not knowing any better. My mother would say, Why do you watch that woman? She's always drunk. <laughs> And, you know, we didn't know she'd been lobotomized. Lobotomized.
1: <laughs> wow. That is fascinating. So I learned
3: from old movies from <laughs> Francis Farber. From a, lo, a, chance a lobotomized to the boy actress. Out, yes. You. <laughs> a lobotomized icon to be, <laughs> so, you know. So you really did not have a chance.
1: This, this was in your blood. This was in so your So to blood.
3: speak, you know. What were some of the favorites? Back then? Yeah. I used to love the the musicals. I fell in love with Doris Day. Mm-hmm. Mm. Partly because I loved Marilyn Monroe and, and my mother thought that was unhealthy. You know, I'd ask... The, she had a cleaning lady once a week because she had eight kids, and I'd ask the cleaning lady to bring me pictures of Marilyn Monroe. Oh, yeah. Who I didn't know was dead, and my mother thought that's not a healthy thing. <laughs> if she'd known how I turned out, she probably would have encouraged the <laughs> cleaning lady, bring him more pictures him of Marilyn, <laughs> any blonde, lots of them, but she didn't think that was healthy. Oh, so I transferred it to Doris Day because I thought she was above reproach, approach, you know, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. All-American and things like awesome. that. So I loved those musicals, you know. I loved the MGM musicals, and I loved... Um, And the Warner Brothers musicals. But I loved movies, for some reason, about movies and movies about show business. I loved backstage. I loved, like, All About Eve. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. I loved the intrigue of backstage dramas. Mm -hmm. I loved anything where you saw the view from the wings. Why? I don't know. Like, remember in Star Is Born, when Norman Maine stumbles onto the stage Mm -hmm. drunk? Yeah. (gasps) I just thought... There was something about the danger of Jack Carson and those ballerinas trying to keep Norman Maine from stumbling onto the stage when poor Judy Garland is performing with her boys behind mm. her. You know, you got to have me go with you all the time. And he's drunk, and Jack Carson, the publicity agent, is trying to keep him from going on. And I remember as a kid thinking, what is this domain? Why is there this line? Right. What are the footlights shining up? And there's a thousand people in the audience, but there's these artificial lights making everyone so pretty that's on this stage. But then there's this third domain. In the wings of all the show, people that the audience can't see, and this one man can tread in between the two, but it's forbidden to break that—not the third wall, but it's or or the fourth wall, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I guess this would be what a third wall. Yeah. But he was going to break in between, and then when he did, Judy Garland covered for him by grabbing her arms around it and making it appear. And then in the box, you know, the studio heads going, "Oh no!" And I remembered as a kid being so fascinated with anyone that's. Stood in the wings and traversed the two worlds, you know? That's fascinating. Well, there were three worlds, really, weren't there? The backstage, the onstage, and the audience. Yeah. And I guess that's sort of... I never have thought of this in my life before until you asked me. But I guess that's sort of what I made into my life, is now what I do is traverse those three worlds. Yeah. Or make it possible for the audience to. To see all of them. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. I guess I... Take that viewpoint now so that the audience sitting in a movie theater or at home, mm-hmm. you know, with mm-hmm. the DVD or, you know, streaming... In fact I used to love when Broadway the golden age was in theaters. Sometimes I would like wear black, sometimes I would wear black. <laughs> hello, I'm from New York. Oh, we we all wear say Rick is wearing black right now. <laughs> yes. Funny the day you'll find me wearing black. But you know, all over the country the movie would play and I'd go and do Q&As everywhere. But sometimes in a matinee or anything, you know, I would um, I'd slip while the movie playing up near the screen in the dark and watch the audience watching the movie. And I would find some theaters, you know, you can go behind the screen. I don't know if you know this. Screens are perforated. For okay. some reason, Perforated screens being perforated makes them appear more three-dimensional or something. Uh-huh. They're perforated, and it's fascinating because if you can get behind a movie screen, you can watch the audience watching oh, wow. the movie, but they can't see you. That's cool. Oh, that's it is wild. very cool. Very cool. Because depending on what's showing on the screen, if it's something light, you can see their reaction. So you better make a good movie. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you better want to see their reaction. Because if it's a real stinker and they're <laughs> looking at each other and that their watch is going, do oh. you want to see what's playing next door? You, know, so you, you don't want to see <laughs> Let's that. Let's go back you know? backstage to the next theater. Want to hop? Were
1: you performing when you were growing up?
3: Um, well, yeah, I did all the plays in high school and things like that. Did you think you were going to be an actor? Oh, I came to New York. And I worked as a singer New York for... You were cabaret singer, too. Years. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I won the awards and yeah. stuff, you know, and worked with great musicians and things like that. You know, I did all the clubs. And then I, you know, worked... Um, on ships, I was a headliner and oh. things like that. I made my living singing. But I could feel the firmament most definitively crumbling below my feet. Huh. Were your parents supportive of moving out of out of the state and moving into New York City? Well I moved like as soon as I was old enough anyway. I moved to Boston and I moved to Japan. I was singing in a nightclub in Japan. But what? they
1: were okay with with you doing
3: well, not really. They'd, my mother always said to me, you have to get an education. You have to have something to fall back on. And I never, ever listened to her. I never did anything sensibly or anything like that. I remember saying, I read somewhere, I said, if you have something to fall back on, you will fall. I don't know where I read that, but I just decided that that was true. I, never I would before, never yeah. give that advice to anybody else because it's really, I'd hate to be responsible for <laughs> for anybody that did that, you know what I mean? Totally, I know what you mean. But uh, so, going back there, for a second, Japan, you were singing in Japan, I was singing in Japan, and I even had a little radio show where I taught, spoke Japanese and English on the radio. What? I sang in a Japanese nightclub, <laughs> I'd be like, minasama. Wa make desu.
1: <laughs>
3: You know, that is and impressive. Like, <laughs> oh, I was so full of piss and vinegar, and I didn't <laughs> know enough to not know what I didn't know, Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It wasn't like I was full of self-confidence. I think I was just kind of stupid. I just, you know, (laughs) I would try anything, you know, and I didn't have, what I do wish I had known enough to do and no one advised me is I should have really gone and gotten a proper music education Mm -hmm. because I never, I mean, Carol Burnett told me, and she was the same way, She never learned music. I mean, she went backstage. She told me about one night she was at the rehearsal club and depressed, and it was a Saturday night, and she got the Sunday Times early, and she was reading it, and she saw the Pajama Game and saw that Eddie Foy was in it. And Eddie Foy was in it, and um, she said, I know someone that knows Eddie Foy I went to school with. And she just brandished his name around and got backstage somehow. And she suddenly heard this thunder and thought it was pouring outside and realized it was the end of the show. And they started running off stage. John Raitt. Janice Page, mm-hmm. Carol Haney, and Eddie Foy came off. And she said, Mr. Foy, Mr. Foy, I know Mike Smith that was in the, you know, that cop uh, movie with you at uh, Warner Brothers. He's like, kid, I don't, I don't know who you mean. What do you want? You know. And she goes, I, I need a break. And he goes, what are you talking about? And he's sweating. He's going to tell. And she said, I just need a break. I, you know. And he goes, well, have your agent call me. She goes, I don't have an agent. That's the problem. He goes, well, then, you know, what do you, you need an agent? What do you do? You know, maybe I can get you, you know, an audition for, to be in, you know, in the chorus. Do you sing? And she goes, well, I don't think I can be in a chorus. I don't, I don't read music or anything. He goes, you don't read music. Well, then maybe I can get you in the dancing girl. She goes, I don't really dance. He goes, well, what what do you do? She goes, I'd have to be a featured player or a lead because, you know, I don't read music or anything, you know? And I was like that. I didn't really properly learn to read music or anything. I could just do the melody. You had to be a star. You'd have to be a star, (laughs) you know? So I had to do my own show. I had to do stuff like that. I didn't even play an instrument. So I'd advise anyone now, if you do anything, you know, learn everything you can about your chosen craft and go to school for that, Mm -hmm. fight your way. And no one taught me that. I did study. I mean, I had a great, you know, I met Barbara Cook. She sent me to Joan Coben, who was Bob Coben's wife. Mm -hmm. Bob Coben, who was her teacher and taught her everything. You know, she owes her entire career to him. You know, and Wally Harper sent me there, too. And I lived for years with Wally Harper, you know, and he played for me. You know, we were lovers. So, I mean, I had the best in that department. I mean, I was vocally Trained impeccably, right. but you know, I, yeah. I I never could have come up through the ranks, you know, mm-hmm. singing, you know, in a chorus of a Broadway show or anything like that. Who are your favorite songwriters? Well, Rodgers and Hart. I mean, I told Mary Rodgers once. You know, we became good friends. You know, I said, I know it's inappropriate, but you know, I still don't think Rodgers and Hammerstein really it even compares to Rodgers and Hart. Mm. And she said, well, I can't say this, of course, ever to you officially, but I completely and totally agree with you. You know, she said, I can wow. say it on camera. Yeah.
1: yeah. Were you a
3: big fan of documentaries as well? Well, I loved like Al Mazel's, you know, mm. and things like that. I mean, I, but I wasn't obsessed with documentaries or anything like that. You know, I loved g- good documentaries, but I wasn't obsessed with them when I was, gr- when I was growing up. Definitely I wasn't because you didn't see that many. I was more you know, I mean, I'd see any film when I first moved to, to Boston. I used to see when I first started really getting into film and going to Sundance and stuff, I would see three to five movies a week. I would oh, see wow. everything.
1: Oh, my gosh. Everything. Really? Wow. Yeah, I think
3: everyone, when you get into film, goes through that phase. I mean, I would go to the movies. Sometimes I'd go see a Broadway show. And before there were like iPhones and when there were Palm Pilots even. And I would come right out of the theater and I'd look at my Palm Pilot and see what I could see on my way home. <laughs> Wow, I remember when Broadway the Golden Age opened, the Wall Street Journal reviewed it. And Terry Teachout said, if Broadway the Golden Age is not playing in a movie theater near you, call your local art house and raise hell. Because this movie should be seen in a theater, even one that serves popcorn. <laughs> and I'll never forget that line. And it really turned things around because yeah. it was a national newspaper. Yeah. And evidently people did call and said, you know, because he said it should be seen in the theater, meaning with other people, yeah, you know, exactly, you know, and stuff. And I remember what it was, you know, like, because uh, I really wanted it to play theaters too, and it did, and it was, and sometimes people still write on Facebook and stuff. I remember the first time I saw, I remember reading just on Facebook last week because it popped up again, the New York Times wedding notice of two gay guys who met because one of them was coming out of seeing Broadway, The Golden Age in Australia.
2: No way. And oh met my gosh. the
3: man he would marry on the street. <sighs> Amazing. On that street in Melbourne where the movie was playing and he came out.
1: Yeah. In the theater, it was
3: a pretty special experience.
1: I saw it at the Sunset 5? Oh, I I
3: the Sunset on Lemley? Lemley Sunset? Yes. Do you know what I'm I, talking about? I'm yes, and, yeah. I, and I yeah, I opened. the. F- I was there for the premiere, the LA premiere, and I wanted to open in that theater. The Arclight wasn't open yet, and I yeah. thought that was the premiere art house cinema in LA
1: and it's it was really, really wonderful, but I don't think I've ever had this experience in a movie theater since which is when you would hear something funny or you would hear something said the audience a group of strangers would turn to each other uh, to commiserate on what they on what they had just seen and I don't think I've ever had that experience before and I don't think I've ever had that experience since there really was any documentaries documenting Broadway at that point. It was either a documentary featuring a specific composer, mm-hmm. a specific show, but nothing like what you set out to do.
3: Well, I, actually, I think that Dory Bernstein's documentary was around the same time, Show Business. Mm. Yeah, but that was, same, that was... That doc, was doc documenting... A, Contemporary, it was season. a contem- four yeah. shows,
1: right? That
2: yeah, was, yeah.
3: And I think if I remember correctly, and the it, PBS series came out that same summer. But these were people reliving their
1: own memories. Uh, it was focused on plays as much as it was focused on musicals. Yeah, I don't think anyone else has done that. I'm proud yeah, of that because it was it was very even. It wasn't just you know because the, the PBS series is focusing primarily on musicals. It's there is there is no discussion musicals. of Laura Taylor. There's no
3: discussion of Tennessee Williams. Yeah. And you you capture that. And I really did try and make it just. About the theater and to have no line in between. I didn't want there to be any, now we're going to talk about plays, now we're going to talk about musicals. Because I remember Joan Coleman, my singing teacher and Barbara's teacher, used to say that singing is just talking in rhythm. Mm -hmm. And you shouldn't feel like now you are talking... And now you are singing. It should really be you're just talking and then you're singing and mm-hmm. it shouldn't be a very different thing. And I thought that's the way I want my film to be, mm-hmm. you know, that it shouldn't be. And I noticed that people sometimes, like Mercedes Rule, called and left me a beautiful message and, you know, I hadn't even met her. But she told me that your, your film is about great theater acting. And then at the end she said in the parts about musicals is really good too. <laughs> But other people will say, your movie about musicals, and people see what they want to see in it. Exactly. And I always thought that was great. It's what you want to it really is to be
1: every time i watch it to me it's like a prism if you turn it this way you get one uh-huh. vision if you turn it another way you get another vision and i think it's it's one of those movies that you can watch repeatedly and every single time something new will pop up to you mm-hmm. or or some piece of wisdom will hit you in a different way
3: i know sometimes like older gay men will say to introduce me to someone and say oh rick made the most wonderful movie about the glamorous Older women of Hollywood. And I'll be like, What? <laughs> what? You know? That's what I did. <laughs> you know, where did the uh, but everyone sees a different that prism, a different mm-hmm. thing, you know? And I'll be like, What about, you know, yeah. Marlon Brando and yeah. you know, and um yeah. and Goulet and um and John Wright and oh, the whole yeah. chapters devoted yeah. to these men, but you know, but you do I wanted it to be what you want it, whatever you want it to be. And I want it also to to disappear into the movie and be there. I want to be sitting there as the person that's watching it. That's why I didn't. In the beginning, some people would say to me, oh, like from PBS, they say, well, you have to take your voice out. You can't be in there. And I'd say, no, I am there for the person that's watching it. I am the person that's yeah. watching it. So I'm sitting in. For that person, I want them to feel like I'm I'm there for them. I'm asking the questions for them. Yeah, right. You know, I am them. You know, so that they feel like someone's representing them. Yeah, you know what I mean. That's oh, yeah. why I only come in very rarely. yeah. But one very good friend said at one point, I can help you get Alan Alda to walk through Broadway, like down the street and just narrate the whole thing. I said, then it would be like every other generic low budget PBS special. Yeah. And he goes, well, it might make it easier to sell. I said, I'm not trying to dump it. I'm trying to make it something that's not like anyone else's. And it really isn't. And I
1: don't think anything has ever come close since.
2: Was it a gradual progression of you Getting into making this film, or was there an aha moment? It
3: was totally gradual. Yeah, it started out originally. I was at City Arts, the you know local PBS yeah. series, where I was a segment producer, uh-huh. and Jamie Dory and I were producing things together okay. there. And um, when we were on hiatus, my friend June Havoc, remember? Oh, June? Oh yes, of course, baby, baby June, June <laughs> baby June, invited me out for the Fourth of July to her house in Stamford, Connecticut. And her assistant, Tana, and June said, I have the best idea. They had two friends, um, Jessica Daryl, Jessica Weiner, and um, her sister, Deborah Grace Weiner. Mm -hmm. And Jessica was painting a mural, and it was going to be in the New Visitor's Center. And it was going to have a 100 Legends of Broadway on it. And they said, this would be a perfect piece for you to do for city arts. I said, we're on hiatus. You know, they don't even... We don't even have meetings. No one's even in the office for right. three months. And they said, it's a shame because she's starting it like this week. And it'll be done by the time your show starts again. And I thought, oh, maybe I'll just shoot it myself mm-hmm. and pitch it to them. But I, but they'll be done. Maybe I'll just shoot a piece over the summer. Because they always want me to do like show busy things. And I am getting tired of doing the same kind of things with them, you know, producing the same pieces. I then maybe I'll do a piece about an artist. So Jamie and I decided we would do it just on spec. But when the show started up again, they were totally not interested, you know. They completely passed, and we would put the whole summer into it. So then I thought maybe I'll just turn it into like a short film. Mm-hmm. But then I pitched it to other avenues at PBS and other places, and there was no interest in it at all. They weren't interested in the piece or the mural. Wow. And I thought maybe I'd try myself to submit it other places and things like that. And then I asked a friend of mine who, who was an editor for me at PBS, and she also edited Michael Moore's um, Roger and Me. Mm-hmm. And she said, what would possibly make it interesting is talk to the people in the mural. So they were friends with Karen Ziemba and I interviewed Karen in her dressing room and she was interesting, she's a sweetheart but I was curious when I went to LA to do some stories for a magazine because I was writing already then and segueing out of performing completely basically then and I was writing so I interviewed Patricia Morrison and that's what really lit my fire because she started telling me about, um, about what the costumes weighed in Kiss Me Cake because they had no money and she said they had to use upholstery material. Thought was a good idea until she found those big gowns weighed like 75 pounds. And I remember just, I could have spent the whole day in her apartment with that bird of hers, you know, that landed on her head during the interviews and things, her parrot, you know. And I was just fascinated. And I think on that same trip, I did Tom Bosley and a handful of other people
0: No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
1: How were you getting in
3: contact with these people? What were you telling them that you wanted to interview one them about? One would lead to another. Each one would connect to another. Like, I went to an opening of something. I think it was with Tova Feldscher or someone. I forget who I was with. But I saw B. Arthur at it, at the opening. And she was surrounded kind of with a phalanx of guys, you know. That were like her, like B posse, you know. Right. <laughs> and I kind of cut it, and I said, "B, it's Rick McCabe from PBS." And she's like, "Hi, Rick. Like, am I supposed to know you?" Right. And I said, "I'm doing this, um, and I would use the PBS thing for a lot of years." Oh yeah. And I think I was still in City Art, so I could use it then anyway. But I <laughs> told her I was doing this Broadway project, you know. And you know, and she said, well, I'm not, I'm not here. I'm leaving tomorrow, you know. And I said, well, I'll be in L.A. shooting, too. And she said, well, call me. Here's my number. And I wrote it down. And I thought, oh, this is good, you know. Yeah. So I called her when I got to L.A. And she said, well, I have to have hair and makeup. I know you guys have no money, but I have to have hair and makeup. I can't do this with no hair and makeup. And she goes, I know someone that's pretty cheap, though. And I was like, this is, this is very good.
2: <laughs> and she gave
3: me the number. And I called them and booked them and booked her at her house, which was good, too. And I remember when I got there, she said, well, the girl's here already. She's in the and we're doing it in the bathroom. We're doing hair and makeup in my bathroom because it's big. She said, why don't you walk, look around the house and figure out where you want to shoot, for starters. I said, okay. And I walked and I looked around and um, figured out where I was going to shoot and and set up. And then like a half hour later, I went into the bathroom and said, I think, you know, how are you doing? She said, well, I'm just about ready. And I said, "Um, I think... We figured out where to shoot and everything, you know. And she goes, I said, I'm just about ready. And she goes, I didn't even hear anybody. Did you let them in? I said, who? She said, the crew. And I said, oh, well, there is no crew. And she goes, what are you talking about? I said, well, it's just me. And she goes, what in the fuck am I doing here in makeup? Well, there's no cameras or anything? I said, no, there's cameras. I set up the cameras. She goes, wait a minute, honey. I don't know what this is, but I'm not doing all this with no lights. I said, no, there's lights. I set up all the lights. She goes, is there sound? I said, yes, there is sound. She goes, there's no sound, man? I said, no, I'm doing the sound. She goes, Are you? but you're running the camera too? I said, yes. And she said, I shudder to ask who's doing the interview. <laughs> I said, "Well, I'm doing the interview too," and she looked at the makeup girl. She goes, "Oh, what in the fuck did I get into?" I said, "Oh, I promise you, it'll be okay." I do this all the time. She goes, "Oh, he does it all the time, you know." And then we, we proceeded to go into the living room, and I mic'd her and you know wired her and everything. And then she um, she said goodbye to the makeup girl because you know mm-hmm. she was on the clock. Yeah. And then she we were getting ready to start. and She goes, "Oh, I need I need something to drink. I need water." And she goes, "I can't get up." She goes. She goes. I suppose you have to get the. You're gonna have to get the water too, you know. And I said, I don't mind. I'll get the water. And she says, it's back there. Jesus Christ! You know. So I went to get her water, and when I went in the kitchen, next to the sink, there was a wall phone, and under it was like a stack of mail. Mm-hmm. And so I was running the water, and one of the letters was open, and it was had like Nanette Fabre's letterhead at the top. I wasn't reading her mail intentionally, but it was a large glass and the water was getting cold. And it said, Dear B, 80, can you believe it? I'm going to be 80 years old and the neighborhood playhouse is throwing a party for me. And... Angela Lansbury, Shirley MacLaine, Carol Burnett are all coming to perform and celebrate me and I hope so much. She goes, did you get lost in there? And I went, no, 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 it's, I'm coming. And I went back with the water. And we did the interview and it went great. We yeah. went, we probably did like an hour and 20 minutes and we thought it would be quick, but we got along really well. Yeah. And after it was um, over, she said, well, I was dreading this when you told me it was just you. She said, but I must admit, you seem to really know what you're doing, and God forbid you really know me and you did your homework. Mm-hmm. I said, well, I certainly wouldn't waste your time if I hadn't done my homework. I said, there's nothing worse. And she said, I should ask you, do you have everyone you need? I mean, have you have you gotten everyone you need? It sounds important what you're doing. I said, well, I'm. it's coming along. I said, I have been looking for like, um, I'm still trying to find your friend, you know, Angela Lansbury and like Shirley MacLaine and Carol Burnett. And she goes, oh my God, you will not believe this. I'm seeing like the three of them next week. I said, oh my God, you are? And she said, yes, I am. She said, go over there to the piano. And on top of it, look, no, over there, over there. She said, now get my address book and just just bring it to me, bring it to me. And on the top of the piano was this, like we all used to have back in the day, those big address books that are have a, like a giant thick rubber band and they're holding like like torn off yep. envelope backs uh, totally. and matchbook covers and post-its and all those pieces of paper and things like that she goes yes bring it bring it you know and i'm like okay i'm like yes. oh my god this is like a gold mine. holy
2: grail yeah and she
3: starts saying now who and she's putting on her glasses uh-huh. and that was the beginning of it getting much, much easier. B. But you had to like prove, not prove, but really prove that you were
2: not just, that you knew what you Well, about. I yeah. should,
3: too. You oh, know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Because I've been interviewed by more people who come to my place when the, you know, and they drop IMDb pages, they print it out, the ink is practically still wet. You know yeah. that they haven't even read like on the train on the way there, and I don't mind. But I mean, I know they'd never watch the movie, and they yeah. are not really interested. Just, they've just been sent there to do it. You know, totally. Do you, or they do it on the phone? And I know they're not even recording the no. conversation because oh. I'll feel I can hear on the phone sometimes. I'll hear and then nothing for the longest time, and then. So I'll think and which is a horrible sound to hear because you think, Okay, that was really boring yeah. in between. <laughs> Got nothing there. And scratch, scratch, scratch means I can pretty much count on mm. inaccuracies, galore, mm. which usually are. Sometimes they'll 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 start writing halfway through somebody I quote, which means when I read the interview yeah. that it'll be like so wrong. Right. You know, do you that's find life. do you find that your interview style
1: changes based on the person you're interviewing? I don't think so. You're always Rick. Rick that, that that energy, that persona doesn't change.
3: No, I really don't think it does. I don't even know if I would if I would know how, but I don't think I could be someone else for them. I mean I remember when Alec Baldwin came for his interview, he was dressed beautifully. I mean Tabber. I almost felt guilty. He was in a beautiful blue suit and a tie and beautifully appointed and shaved and say <laughs> are beautiful. But he was going to turn to classic movies, movies afterwards to do one of those things with Robert Osborne, yeah. I think. But, you know, I live on West End Avenue and I shoot everything in a one bedroom apartment, mm-hmm. you know. And when he first came in the door, he had first of all, I'd set it all up with his like 18 year old intern who was blonde and pretty and obviously not hired for her typing you know what i mean Mm -hmm. and when he walked in the door he went like this he took one step and he almost rocked back and went back out in the hall and he went his eyes went you know he checked the whole place out like he was worried he was going to be duct taped to an office chair as soon as he got in there, like that Scorsese movie. <laughs> <Totally. you know? laughs> and I don't blame him. Yeah. He was like, what in the fuck? And he goes, I thought we were doing this in a studio. I said, no, it's a one-bedroom. <laughs> and he did not laugh. You know? <laughs> he did not laugh at all. But I got him right away miked, you know, so he was kind of locked in. Yeah. Then the worst thing that could happen is he looks down and, he says, you have cats? I'm allergic, you know. And I said, oh, I'm so sorry. Luckily, I had an intern that day. And I said, Mike, would you take the cats in the other room? Because I had two cats then. And what a trooper, because he starts sneezing. Sometime I'll show you the outtakes, which I usually only show when I lecture on ships. But I cut between almost every outtake. I have Alec Baldwin in between each outtake sneezing. <laughs> Until he's almost in tears, but you don't see oh, that in the man. film. But he's like, <laughs> "Oh, bless his heart." I know. And when I showed it on ships, and those ships are so expensive that usually they're they're um, really kind of uh, how can I say it politely, like right wing Republican yes. people. Yes. And they'll say afterwards, "Boy, never liked that Alex Baldwin before, but you know you got to give him credit. He's very likable in the, in those sneezing parts." <laughs> You know, I liked him there. He's, you know, he's an all right, A-OK guy. (laughs) Yeah, amazing. (laughs) Totally. Because, you know, you have to give him credit. But when he left, he looked at this cute blonde intern and he said, you know, you asked me what a documentary was, you know, when we came over here. And uh, this is what a documentary is. This is what's important. This is the real thing. And, you know, I was really... Struggling, and I tell you, I dined out on that for weeks. Yeah, <laughs> you know. Yeah, it really, I, I really appreciated it, even though it was the antithesis of what he came in do Sure, thing, sure. I had to give him credit, you know, because yeah. I was like, this is what matters, you know. Yeah, and he it, gave like, a great interview. Yeah, with yeah, And He loves to talk, and you can see as he's spitting it, how much he loves. You know, he's giving these great allegories. You know, uh-huh. like. You know, a theater director, a film director's job is to bring a 60 million dollar oil tanker into the harbor without a spill, (laughs) you know. (laughs) Totally. You know, and he just loves it. And he has such a gift Uh, for language that way you almost think he's wasting it. How do you get someone to, to come out of their shell? Make it about them, constantly about them you know, and to build them up, you know, and talk about how great their work is and the effect that they've had on people and the effect they've had on you. Usually it's very, the harder they are to break down, the more you make it about them, they tend to break down, it seems. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's hard for them not to break down when it's all about them, it seems. You know, I have had people that you finally get to break down like that and you think you've really broken them down and then when the interview ends... It, it goes right back up again. Oh, and interesting. Cold and hard as can be. Mm-hmm. I had one person, I won't mention their name, who's practically royalty, who, who even when the interview was over, I said, Do you mind if we get a photo together? They were like, No, of course, darling. And I got a picture with them and I put the camera down and I said, Thank you so much. And I turned around, I went to get the release form or something and I turned back and they were gone. Oh, my gosh. They didn't even say goodbye. I mean, talk about a cold fish. Ooh. You know? Some of them turn it on just for the camera, and then it's so off. Whereas other ones can be just completely warm as can be. Isn't one of you, I think it's you, a Joyce DeWitt fan? Yes, my God! Yes, both are. you both are. <laughs> yeah, she I is love not.
2: That. I never thought that sentence was going to come out just now. I have to tell you, Rick, <laughs> from me. Yeah, I didn't know you. Of all the names you were going to say, I did not expect Joyce to win. Oh, thank
3: you. I have no shame. <laughs> thank I, I you. am I'm a proud. Sorry, fan yes. Of please Stewart. continue. <laughs> Joyce hmm. is incredible, and she has she been on your show? No, no. Oh, you
1: have to have her. Uh, she's a wonderful actress. She doesn't get the credit, I think. She no, deserves- she's a wonderful
3: actress, and she's everything you want her to be off camera. Mm. Mm. I mean, she, was, she gave me some wonderful advice. She was even, how can I say this tactfully? As we left together, and we were out on the street together, and um, someone stopped me on the street and asked me for some contacts and some phone numbers of some important people because they were doing a benefit. Oh, and wanted a, some phone numbers, and I said, "Why don't you call me at home?" This, you know, it's not really appropriate right now, and stuff. And when they walked away, Joyce put her hand on my arm and she said, "You have to be very careful, because you're the kind of person that people will take advantage of, and you're too generous with yourself." I know that already, you know. And she was so warm. Mm-hmm. I mean, we kept in touch for a while, so loving and so sincere and so generous. You know, I mean, she's the real thing. That makes me so happy to hear. Was uh, antithesis of the other person I was talking about? Uh-huh, oh, uh-huh, yeah, uh-huh. yeah. Totally different. You know what I mean? Yeah. And we had many long talks and stuff, and she's the real thing. Oh,
1: that makes me so happy. Yeah.
3: And th- and you're a one-man band at this point, pretty totally. much. Oh, I had interns, but they were, you know kids you know yeah, I and mean, you're never out were of, able to do anything like that filming out of your apartment uh-huh or in people's homes the living or going homes. to people's homes yeah
1: i'm sure you get asked this question a lot was there somebody that you would love to have had interviewed that uh,
3: passed oh yeah there were always that question i mean i kim stanley i was working mm. on even trying to help her family get her into the actress home when she mm-hmm. died anthony quinn died mm. as we were negotiating jason robarts died while we were negotiating I mean, I was always chasing the clock. Still trying to get Streisand and Julie Andrews. Paul Newman, Liz Ashley, wrote him like a five-page letter, you know, him and Joanne. Yeah. I have to admit, though, a lot of the people that I haven't gotten, I'd like to think that I hold some magical sway that I could have gotten the dream interview out of them. But I don't think a lot of those people have given dream interviews. Yeah, I think think you're right. Do you know what I mean? I I totally know exactly exactly what you mean. I'm not sure that that's a part of them. Do you know what I mean? That's right. What happened? Do you you think there's Julie Andrews? I mean, have you ever seen her open up and really just like no give that kind of same thing thing with Barbara? I mean, like that's. I mean, it might be in there, but it's I don't know. I don't. I know if you get fifteen or twenty minutes, you ain't gonna get it. Right now. I mean, Simon Jones wrote me a beautiful letter when the first movie opened, and he or after oh, after it, maybe it came out on DVD because he had time to see the PBS version, and he said when I watched the PBS version, he said it was like Julie Andrews was Mrs. Anna lecturing the children of Siam about Broadway. <laughs> he said, but yours was really capturing. Yeah. our own heartbeat. Mm -hmm. And he said, I know you didn't end up using me in the final cut, but I don't even care. I want to thank you for making this movie. Wow. And that was from someone who didn't make the final cut. Totally. And I was like, wow. That's beautiful.
2: I imagine you probably got a lot of guests once the first movie came out, then people could see it with the respect and dignity and how you honored these older legends and I would think it would be easier to get other ones from you know uh, that experience
3: you would for like the to- second film yeah and for the you know yeah and usually it is yeah. I mean sometimes it's still hard and some of the first film they get mad you know some of those legends in the first film still don't think they were used enough you know yeah uh,
2: that's funny I a lot I more than you think. I'm not surprised by that to be honest oh true wait so were you ever j- in the middle <laughs> of an interview and then just completely shocked by like that they were expressing something or saying something or you were didn't know you were caught off guard by information I don't know just something like a, so a moment revealed yeah you that you was just like whoa I didn't expect that coming at all like because you know you do all this research and you you pretty much know you kind of know what you're gonna talk about in an interview? Have you ever been completely thrown off?
3: That's a good question. I'm trying to think if I have been. Because you've logged how many hours now of... of Oh, probably like 600 or more. Yeah. I'm trying to think if I've ever been complete. I know I have been because I can see myself going. (laughs) But now that I think of it, I can't think what those... That's cool. What those moments are, but I know I've been like... yeah, some things have shocked me because I have... One question that I don't think it's going to make it in the film. It might be a bonus feature because it became so intense. But Ben Gazzara told me I should ask people this, oh. and it became one of my favorite questions. But then I'm not sure that it's. I think it's too good and too powerful for the film. Is he said ask people? He said by the time tell them by the time they sit across from you, the dream came true clearly. Or you wouldn't have them sitting across from you in your apartment. But what did it cost? And not everyone will go there, but I ask at last, what's the price you paid? And of course, there's about 20, 25% of them say, it costs nothing. Mm -hmm. It costs nothing. Then you have to work. Then I have to tell them what other people said. I have to tell them about Glenn Close walking to the theater and looking at people having dinner. And brownstones and fathers coming home from work and the kids running up to meet him. And her thinking of her kid in boarding school and the marriage that didn't work and wondering if any of the dancers might want to maybe one of them go out for drinks that night so she did not have to walk across an empty stage and pass the ghost light and go home alone again. You know, Or Liza talking about what it's like to go out with the new man in her life who she thinks might be it. And then the maitre d' saying, Miss Minnelli, oh, Mr. Minnelli, how are you? And seeing the guy either crumble or, you know, realize he's not strong enough to take it or he's too strong to want to even deal with it right. and then deciding you're never going to get married again because this is not worth it, you know, because you can't, no guy wants to deal with this, you know, You know, and the different, you know, the price people paid, you know, or the woman who, who has to say to the little girl she never had, you know, oh, Mom, I can't talk today. She has a show tonight. Mm-hmm. And she knows what she would say to the little girl. That's why she never had the little girl. And she even knows it's a little girl mm-hmm. that she never had. You know, that's why she never had children. She's telling you this story as she has a tear in her eye. And a lot of time, Di- you know, or Diane Carroll saying, would my daughter be the woman she is today if I had been there? Right? She said, what Ben's not telling you is that it's not the price you pay. It's the price everyone that loves you paid.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Uh- Because you were never a very good wife, never a very good mother, never a very good friend, never a very good sister, because you missed birthdays and Christmases, and because if you are chosen, then you must go. Mm. And the whole time she tells it, tears run down her face, and her head is held high, and she wipes them away, and she keeps talking with her head held high. And they just run down again. It's so powerful that I don't know if I can use it. Yeah. And I've got a lot of people telling it. And I have to tell people these stories. And the people that won't talk about it, when you tell them those stories, then you sometimes regret it because then they do open up. It's a hard job because when you do get people to open up and you take them back in time, then you have to return them to the present Mm -hmm. because you can't walk out of their life and leave them there like that. Once you take these people back in time, you're responsible to return them safely to a to a safe present and not leave them alone with a bottle of wine when you walk out, you know? The footage
1: that is not used in the film, things that you cut out, I'm assuming you don't discard it. I'm assuming it doesn't go into the the rubbish bin. Oh, no. What do you plan on doing with that footage at some point? Will it always stay locked away? Will it be turned over to a university for uh,
3: future study? Is there a plan for it? Well, there's not an ironclad Plan, but it definitely will be, you know, available. I just have to decide where its final home will mm-hmm, be, mm-hmm. you know, but I would like it to be, the public will definitely have access to it eventually. But remember, this is a trilogy. Yes. So it won't be until after all three films are out.
1: So th- that's our next question, which is when do we see parts two and part
3: three? And, and part two covers. Part two covers like, it it overlaps a little bit. It's 1959 mm-hmm. to. Um, early 1980s and this one starts with like Gypsy and Once Upon a Mattress and Fiorello it's a great season 59 great season yeah but it's not comprehensive yeah I never tried to do comprehensive because I figure other people do that Mm -hmm. I mean i I'm hitting highlights, not judged by what was most important, but judged by where the stories that I find. Like, I love Tom Bosley telling the story of being a temp that only worked in the summertime in stock. And he lived in an apartment like on Riverside Drive in a family's apartment where he just rented a the bedroom. And one day he's going down in the elevator, and the, um, the elevator operator looked at him and goes, you know, kid, I'm also an unlicensed agent. And, you know, Arthur Penn lives in this building, and he's kicking around an idea of a musical about a Fiorello. You know, you look like Fiorello, kid. No way. I could submit you. I'm an unlicensed agent. Like I said, I could submit you for this. And I have Hell uh, Prince telling the story, too, you know, of... um." He said, "We've been trying to find. We were looking at Mickey Rooney and all these people, but not anyone that actually looked like Fiorello." And I have Sheldon Harnick telling it too. And
2: oh my god!
3: What a great story! And he went and auditioned, you know. And and Sheldon says um, he auditioned, great. And George Abbott said, "I want him." And I said, "Mr. Abbott," but he's never even been on Broadway, not even in a chorus. And he says, "I don't care. I like him." <laughs> you know, he said, "But he's never even." Are you sure? Yeah. Got and, instinct. Yeah. And it's quite a story, isn't it? Yeah. That's Unless oh, I, an elevator operator or something. You just think, jobs.
1: really? That
2: sounds and like then, a movie plot. <laughs> and
1: what is part three cover? We go from 42nd Street to well, present the, day? Well,
3: the second one has also, talk about Once Upon a Mattress, it's Carol getting the job, but it's also Jane White, whose father, you know, Jane White played the queen, and her father was the head of the NAACP. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, wow. And she auditioned, and George Abbott once again said to Mary Rogers, we can't have a black queen, Mary. Get you out of your mind? No, get her out of here. But Mary and Marshall Bear had this crazy idea, and they wanted her to go and go to this <gasps> photographer who did makeup, too, and, and do a makeup job on her that would make her, as George Abbott said, or the stage manager said to her, Jane, you're great, but you're a little too Mediterranean. And she said, you mean too Negro, we called ourselves. Wow. And he said, we want you to go to this makeup guy. And she said, if you want a white actress, don't get a white actress. And then she looked at me and she said, but I wanted that job so bad. Oh. Mm-hmm. And Mary said, can you imagine the daughter of the NAACP? But she did it. Wow. And she got that job. And she tells the story for the first time in our film. Oh, my gosh. You know? I mean, it was pretty daring. And then we got um, Chicago. Yeah. And uh-huh. I got rare, rare footage. And I have Gwen and Cheetah and Jerry Orbach and Candy Brown and Pam Sousa and Sean Peacock and all those girls. All right. The original cast of Chorus Line, I've tracked them all down. Even Tommy Walsh I got before he left. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, and that whole, you've probably seen, did you see on YouTube what I put up of the yes. tape session? Which I can't use in the film because it's too long, you know, but I decided not wait until... now a DVD bonus feature cause DVDs may be dead. Yeah. You know, and Pippin, <laughs> I got all those Pippin guys and stuff, you know, and, um, and the straight plays, you know, like the making of barefoot, I've got Redford and Liz Ashley, you know, telling about how they were brothers and sisters in a dreadful play called the highest tree, you know, together. And how then Liz recommended him for barefoot and yeah. about how they went to their first opening night together at Sardi's in the highest tree. And, And how poor Redford was left at the table alone, not knowing the protocol when the bad reviews come in. The word of mouth spreads and everyone sneaks out and he's left sitting alone at the table with all the food. Oh, uh, we, oh
1: my gosh. We cannot wait to see this and yeah. we are so excited and people can go onto your website and we'll post a link to the website as well. Um, Thank you. Yeah, which will will which we'll show this and we encourage all of our listeners, please watch this fantastic documentary Broadway The Golden Age. It is it is really something special.
2: It's more well, than we'll just, just required. Keep... Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's entertaining and it's a historical yeah. lesson. And it's not
3: just even for theater people out no. I know the first film people would it's about New York and it's about struggle and yeah. it's about I kind of think of it like like Chorus line was not just yeah. for people that mm-hmm. like dance you know exactly it would be about you know it's for people that just like like struggle and dreams and yeah. passion yeah. and but it to make a long story short it'll be finished around the end of the year great and then it'll do festivals and things and it'll Fantastic. Up next year. Great. And we'll know you know more as it does the festival circuit and that. distributors and things like that but and more will be sneaking out you know things good like that. Yeah. but we'll keep you guys oh yeah Yes. We will be first in line. <laughs> we will be first in line. <laughs> well, you'll be the first to know. Thank right. you. Thank you, Thank Rick. You. Thank you Thank so much, It's truly a pleasure.